Welcome to the For Real For Real podcast, where we share our reality and perspectives on what's going on in the world of pop culture, sports, relationships, society, and much, much more. All while keeping it real and getting into the shits, as we like to say. I'm Jeff Brooks, the Renaissance Man. This your boy, Big Easy. Para mi mujer hispana, me llamo Samuel. And they call me T-Mac, but my mom calls me Trevor. What we got going on today, fellas? Kawhi's on the way. Kawhi's on the way. My brothers, if you can't tell, I am in a most superb mood. The battle for LA will have to wait until 2021. Again, and as always been for the last 50 years, there's only one premier Los Angeles basketball team, and that is your Los Angeles Lakers. More than you can say about the Knicks, but we're not going to talk about old episodes and old stuff. Sam, how you feeling this week, my friend? I was feeling better until you mentioned the Knicks. Why you always got to troll the Knicks? Like, yes, the Knicks have been terrible for 20 years. We get it. I don't know what fixes that, but whatever. But- Rent-free, right? Rent-free in my brain. <laughs> exactly. I've been in a, a little bit of funk and, and tiredness. I think that's just the, the fall blues kind of hitting. But, you know, I just heard the uplifting Negro spiritual voice that is Jeff Brooks on the mic to open the show. So I'm catching my second wind. So I'm ready to kind of get back out there and uh, hit the field. Hit the field, man. Okay. Speaking of hitting the field, we just started a new season of the National Football League. This is supposed to be America's sport. Let me ask you, Sam, is that still the case? I think we would have to ask those people who were booing inaugural game, the opening night when it was the Kansas City Chiefs uh, playing the the Houston Texans. Um, Players were just right before the game started – were, you know, locking arms for unity. Bring me up to speed. So who are the two teams now? They were the Kansas City Chiefs and the Houston Texans. I think I heard that the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl last season, but I wouldn't know because I haven't watched football in the last four years. So you got some pretty cool quarterbacks that play for both teams and they tried to, I guess, do some type of phony unity ceremony. Yeah, they certainly did. Um, You know, and... and Apparently, America wasn't ready for that. And the whatever, 15,000 fans or whatever were in the stadium, because apparently Kansas City allows fans in stadiums right now. That's a lot of fans. During a a pandemic, we're booing unity. That's where we are in America right now. Can't say I'm surprised. You know, there's a lot of people that, uh, that talk a good game with the black squares on Instagram and all of that. But when it comes down to it, then they're really not about that life. So it's par for the course out here. Yeah, and I think it's just indicative of the fan base. I think Roger Goodell and the powers that be knew this a long time ago when they chose to not stand up for Colin Kaepernick. Deep down inside, they knew what he was doing was right. And as you see him doing his media tour now, he's saying that, you know, he probably should have talked to Kaepernick. He wished he could have talked to Kaepernick, that Kaepernick was right all along. And I would probably say that Cadell probably felt that way for a long time. And he actually did understand and he got it. If he didn't get it back then, he probably got it when he spoke with Jay-Z. But what he understands and gets more than anything else is his fan base and what they expect. And what side of the coin they're going to they're going to stand on? It's sad to see, but like Trevor said, it's uh, certainly not surprising. Yeah, because even the the other side of that is, you know, fans are booing, and immediately they transition from like a boo to like their tomahawk chalk chop. Which is the NFL is also trying to move away from things like the Redskins and like being offensive towards Native Americans, and the fan bases are like, "Nah, we don't give a fuck about that either," right? So it kind of shows you like how divided we are in different parts of like the country, because ultimately 
people want to do what they want to do and what they want to do is watch their sports and act a fool the way they want to and not be told that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, it just goes to show too. I mean, I don't even think that you can get 15,000 people to gather in a stadium in New Jersey or in Los Angeles. Like, I just don't know for sure that the people who live in these environments on the coastal states would even care to be in that close proximity to their fellow Jet fans, Giant fans, Rams fans, uh, Raiders fans. I know they're in Vegas now, but I just think that they probably would avoid that altogether. And then you just have a different mindset, uh, a totally different culture in middle America. Just goes to show how big this country is and just how diverse the way of thinking is. And there really is two countries. There's a MAGA country and there's everybody else. Do we think that's part of the reason that Kaepernick still hasn't gotten a job, even though, you know, as you saw, you know, Goodell doing his like press tour and who Roger Goodell is like the commissioner of the NFL for for those who don't know. But, you know, he's going out press tour, definitely saying that Colin was right. But when is a team going to like step up and sign this guy? Because ultimately, unfortunately, it has been four years and maybe it might be too long. You know, it might be too much of a gap in between when Colin last played. But there's roughly about 100 quarterback jobs in the NFL, 32 of which that are starting. And then there's usually about two backups on the team. Kaepernick can't be a backup anywhere. No team is willing to kind of like take that bullet. Why do we think that he just hasn't gotten the opportunity? I feel like that that tryout he had earlier this year was was probably his best shot. Thinking pragmatically right now, I'd say if I'm an owner, regardless of the fact that, that Kaepernick deserves a spot in the league, I don't know that I'd be rushing to sign him, mainly because you know he's not going to start at this point, right? And there's like there's no training camp, so there's no time to kind of get him acclimated to your system. So you got to bring him on to the team, open up all these questions, kind of bring in this media attention for a guy that might be third or, or second string at best on your team, right? And if you don't have a quarterback that's fragile, what's the purpose of having an insurance policy that's only going to bring more, I don't want to say a headache or a drama, but kind of bring more unneeded attention to your team? Well, that's always been the fallback, right? The unwanted attention. But I think if you're speaking about attention, now would probably be the time because you don't really have as much media or as much fans in these areas. But I'll just go and say, it's a wrap for Cap. It's been four years. I mean, it's back who's been a mobile quarterback. There's been an influx of mobile quarterbacks in the league. So one would say that, okay, he would fit right in, but his uniqueness is no longer a rarity anymore. You got a whole bunch of quarterbacks that can do what Colin Kaepernick did when he was in his prime, and they could probably do it better than what he did. And that also just goes to their built-in excuse to where is, oh, is Cap even that good? He had a bad last season. Now you have the fact that his last season in the league wasn't his best Number-wise, even though he actually did a pretty decent job considering he had no weapons and had a pretty crappy line and just had an overall bad team at that point, then you add four years in inactivity into also just a changing way, I would imagine. Um, Sam, you're probably better at this because you still watch. (laughs) No judgment here as far as just the style of play and if that's conducive to Kaepernick. So even with a progressive organization like the Seahawks and you got coaches like Pete Carroll winning, wearing social justice shirts and and racism shirts, if he hasn't been invited to a camp at this point, I just can't see it happening. And at this point too, I would just say Kaepernick's probably okay with that. He's still selling a lot of jerseys, um, probably going to sell a whole bunch of sneakers and his legacy is cemented. He had a very 
good career, Hall of Fame pace numbers when he was in the league, he won, even with him not playing on the field again. And even if he does play at this point, I think it probably would water down what he actually stood for. The fact that he can actually say that, yeah, I was too badass for the NFL. I was so about it that they blackballed me, even when they were talking about all this and racism, social justice, advocacy, nonsense that they were talking. I think it's probably in his best interest that they continue to just be the biggest that they really are. We think that was basically like everything that's happening, you know, with the NFL and spending or donating money towards social justice causes. Like, do we think all that stuff is just window dressing? I think that they definitely realize the error of their ways. But at the end of the day, they're a sports league. And for all of the publicity statements and and charitable organizations and donations that they're making, like there's only so much you're going to be able to do because at the end of the day, what, what your business is run on is a game, right? So I don't know. And that, and on that same line, like signing Kaepernick at this point to me is just kind of a publicity stunt. If you know, he's not going to play, you're just signing him to your roster to say that you signed him to your roster. And at the end of the day, how meaningful is that? And Jeff, to your point, like it almost taints his, his mission. If he does get signed and they do put him on the field and he underperforms, right? Like if he doesn't deliver after all of this fighting, after all of these kind of like statements and the videos he's putting out on Twitter or whatever, if he actually gets signed, comes back on a team, gets put on the field and stinks it up, those haters and the Trump lovers are going to have a field day and we will never hear the end of it. So I don't know if the juice is really worth the squeeze in that instance. Does it really taint its legacy? And and this is more a question for you, Jeff, because Muhammad Ali did lose some fights. And, you know, ultimately he lost a major fight coming back from retirement when he fought Joe Frazier, right? But was that Ali's first comeback fight or was were there a few fights before that? But ultimately my point is, did it taint Ali's legacy? Because at that point, he was in a weird place. It was the same kind of thing where it was a very divided America. You had a a man who didn't want to fight for his country and you had, you know, a group of people who were like, but it doesn't make sense to go die somewhere else, right? Jeff, what do you think uh, if in that Ali comparison? Well, that's definitely like a two-wrong question because, and I say this quite often on social media, I think we fall victim to what I like to call revisionist history. When Dr. King was assassinated back in 1968, Gallup made a poll and he was the most hated man in America. Fast forward a few years later, the same narrative with Muhammad Ali. He was this outspoken, audacious Negro who had the nerve to tell right America how he felt during those times, right? They already don't like it right now, many people. Imagine how it was back in fresh off the civil rights era. So you had this guy speaking out against a war that even when he was speaking out about it, wasn't even totally unpopular the way that we'd like to believe it was. It definitely tainted his legacy then. But it was legacy is something that has to be revisited every so many years. During the time, yeah, you know, people were definitely laughing at Ali. It wasn't a good look that he lost to Frazier. It, people kind of laughed at him and, you know, it kind of further proved the point of the people who were in opposition to him. But when he had a chance to fight again and win the title again, it certainly helped. I don't think that we're as uh, patient now. I think, and thing is too, with football versus boxing is that you might go three or four months without having an actual fight. Maybe you might have two fights a year. That's how it is right now. I think in those days it might have been a little bit more often than that. So imagine Kaepernick gets on the field 
And just because he's out of practice and out of playing for four years, for the first four games, he's rusty. Today, he will only get those four games. He's got four games to really stink it up. So back to what I said originally and what Trevor said, I think that it probably would be in his best interest for a team not to sign him. It's not a good look on a team, and it's not a good look for him. It's a lose-lose situation. And who really thinks that he would be as good as he was with a new system, with a new team most likely? He was probably back in 2015. Madden. (laughs) Yeah, better than Cam Newton apparently. Cam isn't isn't exactly lighting it up, but I still haven't cracked open Madden, by the way. I, I agree with Jeff on that Ali point. I think the other part of that that like gets lost, and it's it's almost an unfair comparison because of what boxing is, especially heavyweight boxing at that time. Like I remember and shout out to ESPN for the early in the pandemic, they had put on all the old Ali fights. So that was the first time I had actually watched Ali Frazier. And I remember watching that fight a few months ago and being like oh shit, like Joe Frazier was good. But like, if you've only heard the stories and seen the movies, it's always like Ali kind of poking fun at Frazier and you think of Frazier as this doof who just like was the B-side, but like he could fight his ass off and like legitimately beat Ali. It wasn't even like, oh, well, Ali was rusty. Like, no, Frazier like whooped his ass that fight and Ali barely got out. I believe he broke his jaw. He broke yeah. And the fact is that like, yes, he was rusty, but like, even if he wasn't rusty, he might've took that L. But the thing that was redeeming for Ali in that situation is like Jeff said, you have a couple months where you can kind of get a rematch. You come back, you only fighting a few times a year. So you have a chance to redeem yourself. Whereas in football, it's every week. So like, oh, you're bad this week. You're bad next week. You're bad the week after that. That's all it takes for somebody to completely write you off forever. So yeah, I'm just doubling down on saying it may be better for Colin to kind of ride off into the sunset, you know, get his show popping with Netflix and Ava DuVernay and all the other things that he's got going on. I know he just put out some more jerseys with Nike. He's got a lot going on that's that's doing great for the people. So there's no need to kind of come off that course just to say that you got another crack at the NFL. Let me ask you guys a question. What's your opinion about Kaepernick's style as far as how he chooses to address the media, how he chooses to stay silent? I, for one, am a fan of how he conducts himself. I think that he knows his role. He knows what's at stake. He knows how to use his leverage. There's probably more articulate people in the lane that he's operating in. So he doesn't ever want to misquote himself or uh, misstate his uh, words. There's people that we know that think that he's a coward because he doesn't speak up, you know, and actually uh, speak out about certain things, but kind of just does an occasional tweet or an occasional Instagram post and come out with very strongly charged words every so many months. So yeah, what do you guys think about Colin Kaepernick and the way he's conducted himself, not just recently, but throughout the course of this four-year quarantine from the NFL? I think you kind of hit the the nail right on the head. I think that he knows that he's probably not articulate enough to carry the conversation in that way. And I, I do think that when he was in his last season kind of addressing these things, you know, on a much smaller scale with like the local media in in San Francisco, he had a few missteps, you know, rocking a shirt that said pigs. I think he had something referring to Fidel Castro one day. Like there were things that he was kind of saying that could be seen as offensive to other groups. And I think because of that, he was like, oh shit, like maybe I need to chill out. It's ultimately what you like from your athlete, right? Because I know going back to like the beginning of the the pandemic when we were watching Michael Jordan in The Last Dance, right? Like talked about Michael Jordan's lack of, I won't say political awareness, his lack of being able to take a stand 
even though there were certain things that now it appears that did bother Michael Jordan and now he's putting money towards because he wants to be that kind of athlete, right? Or that kind of person slash owner, billionaire, all that. But I do think that with Kaepernick specifically, I think he knew he wasn't well-versed enough to tackle these kinds of conversations. And because of that, he's kind of shied away from having like the big conversation and uses his people around him wisely. So, and I guess in other words, Colin Kaepernick is the anti-Kanye West. I think everyone's anti-Kanye these days. I would hope so, at least. Yeah, no, but Kanye West is somebody who is, uh, and I don't want to speak about Kanye West too long, but he does say some pretty spot-on things, but it's so impulsive and it's not polished that you can totally lose the point with the absurdity of some of the things that he says. And I think that Kaepernick, like Sam said, I think he has a very strong team around him that makes sure that his message is extremely intentional and it can't be taken out of context. Yes, because otherwise you don't want to be pissing on Grammys, right? Uh, you know, we don't want to go too far into Kanye West, but yes. And unfortunately, Kanye is someone who just practices poor impulse control. And you're absolutely right. Kanye will say some things that you're like, that part might make sense or that part is pretty like spot on. It could ring true. But unfortunately, like the way in which he delivers it and the, the way in which he might like follow that up with his actions make it so laughable that you're like, I can't really subscribe to the things that you're saying or doing, right? So I think Colin has a much better team around him than Kanye does. But also, I don't know if it's safe to say, I would say I would bet that Colin isn't mentally ill. So whereas Kanye like is. Enough about him, man. I think Barack said it best about Kanye. He's a jackass. But on a semi-brighter semi note, this past week, we saw a smidget of justice kind of come through and kind of some of the stuff that, that Colin's been fighting for, right? And kind of just trying to have this accountability. While we have still yet to arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor, the uh, police department out there took what, what I th- saw as a big step and kind of taking at least a small amount of accountability and reaching a settlement with the family of Breonna Taylor. So what are you guys thoughts on that $12 million check that they signed over or rather that taxpayers in that city just signed over to kind of do their best at at making amends? How much is $12 million for one? Is $12 million a lot of money? Is that enough money for generational wealth? That's just my question. You know, is, is it substantial? It's just quite intriguing that there hasn't been any admitting of wrongdoing, but yet the same city, the same municipality could write a check for $12 million. Personally, I would love a $12 million check, but not at the expense of anyone that I care deeply about. So I think that just no one's really talking about it, but I think the price point is not enough. I think that there is a a lot more money that could have gone to the family. And two, it's a slap in the face. Now, I would argue that this probably helps the cause a lot more when it comes down to pursuing any other charges against the officers and whatnot. Because with this check or with this payout, you're not paying out anybody if you're not guilty. At least that's the mentality. You you ask people who observe the OJ Simpson trial and OJ Simpson was found not guilty for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. But a few years later, he was sued in civil court. Um, shout out to my old media law professor, Paul Callen, who represented the Goldman family and suing O.J. Simpson. They were entitled to, they actually got, and here's the thing, they got $33 million back in the 
mid to early 90s for the murder of their son. Ultimately, I think it just further validates what the Taylor family and the advocates plan to pursue. What's the point of writing out a check if there's nothing that was done wrong? I agree with that. This is, you know, they wrote a check to try to keep people quiet. Like, this is what that feels like. And ultimately, like, in what has at least been talked about since then, the municipality has also put in some provisions around, like, being able to provide, like, social workers to support during, like, some criminal incidents, you know, some revisions to, like, how the warrants will look like and, you know, how the chain of command for for warrants would look like. So there are some things that can be viewed as, as positive. However, again, you must be doing this because you know someone did something wrong, but no one's actually admitting that they did anything wrong. And that's the problem we have here is ultimately the, the officers who committed this murder still work there. Still, like right now, like can stop you at a traffic light, can knock on your door as well, right? Like can do all these things. And, and if that's not terrifying to people, I don't know what is. I think one of them got fired or at least suspended. Like one of the detective or the main guy. Yeah. I don't know if he was the one to pull the trigger, but at least one yeah. of them I know is, is not active anymore. And my famous words, whoopty freaking do. I was just looking a little further. So it turns out to, to put that $12 million in perspective, it's not the largest settlement. So even like actually earlier this year, kind of the appeals court in Baltimore County actually overturned a verdict. And, and that kind of resulted in a $38 million award going to the family of Corin Gaines, a 23-year-old woman who was shot and killed by county police in 2016. What makes this case different, obviously, that's a big, big delta between those two numbers. As I just said, that killing happened in 2016. So you're talking about four years later, that family kind of finally going through the justice system and getting that payout that was due to them. In this case, we're talking like Brianna got shot in what, March, February? March 13th, I believe. Yeah. So we're talking six months and they're writing a check. So that's, I think, what, what you kind of have to factor in and knowing that police departments historically don't want to admit any wrongdoing. Um, and that's why they wrote that check. But the fact that they did act quickly and did still write a sizable check and then agreed to make some changes in how they kind of go about policing. I think that's like, to Jeff's point, it's not going to bring her back and it's not, it's not enough. If I were of that family, I would have respect for how they'd handle that part of it. Like, obviously, there's there's a lot of mishaps and, and kind of open wounds and just unjust kind of handling and, and the actual prosecution of those officers. But the fact that they've like made this step this fast to kind of make sure that that family was taken care of, I think that's something to accept and, and acknowledge as, okay, well, this is a step in the right direction. Generally, what happens is if you rush a negotiation, you wind up overpaying. So this was a speedy resolution, and it certainly feels like they've underpaid, right? And you've used that scenario. I know Jeff is going to reference another scenario where, you know, that specific police department paid more for doing similar, right? So I don't necessarily agree with that. Now, again, $12 million, $40 million, $100 million does not bring back your relative. And of course, like that part is always going to be the thing that hurts and it's going to be hard to kind of move past. But what you want is for you to be like properly compensated, if anything. One thing that should not be overlooked is 
outside of the murder of Breonna Taylor and her sleep has been the concerted effort. And, you know, I don't want to speak in great detail because obviously I don't have the fact sheet in front of me right now, but there's been an intentional smear campaign to stain the reputation of Breonna Taylor. There's been deals that have been attempted to be cut with ex-boyfriends looking to, I guess, indict her and implicate her in some type of drug ring. There's been all different types of things being said about her alleged involvement and what she wasn't doing. Um, Ballistics reports might have shown that she may have been killed by her boyfriend's gunfire. Um, There's just so much misinformation being put out there by the prosecution, by the police department to muddy the waters to make a payout like this even more um, impossible to, to pay out. So I think that the Taylor family probably should pursue a libel and slander lawsuit after this is all said and done, if that's possible. I would not let up if I were the Taylor family. Now, one thing that Sam did mention that I was going to bring up and another example in regards to how justice plays out in this country in respect to black and brown people versus mainstream Americans, you know, uh, white Americans or, or white persons. And, and, and this is actually goes to someone who I believe wasn't, maybe may have not even been an American. She was um, from Australia. Uh, it was a young woman by the name of Justine Damon, who was gunned down by a Minneapolis police officer. The police officer was a black police officer. I believe he was of um, Somali um, descent. You know, Minnesota has a pretty heavy Somali presence. Allegedly, she approached a car in a, a frantic manner, and the officer killed her. He, he murdered her. Um, and it, it was ruled that he reacted inappropriately. Probably no different than many other officers who had not been fired and had been let off the hook for, for killing black people. But I digress. Either way, Muhammad Noor was um, promptly arrested. Uh, he was tried. He was convicted. But not only that, the family of Justine, they received a pretty sizable payout. You want to know how much that payout was for? It was more than $12 million. It was actually $20 million. And in respect to Trevor's point about the time frame, I can't even tell you the amount of speed that this officer was erected, trialed, and convicted, and that this payout happened. This probably happened all within 12 months of the payout and the arrest and conviction of this officer. Now, had the same result had happened if Muhammad Noor was, say, Bradley Stevens, uh, you know, shout out to the Celtics, uh, Bradley Stevens, the officer Bradley Stevens, and Justine was a Juanita Jackson. I just can't see it happening that way. And that's the sad reality of how justice works. And it, it's similar to Matthew McConaughey's um, closing deposition or, or closing statement in A Time to Kill, where they literally have, like, I believe it's like a majority white jury. And the Samuel L. Jackson's character's daughter is uh, raped and mutilated by these white gentlemen or white men who were murdered by Samuel L. Jackson. And the closing point that Matthew McConaughey had to make to the jury was, now imagine if the girl was white. And then you just see the shock and all like, <gasps> you know? Um, so I think that sometimes it has to be done for the country to kind of see just like unsubstantial this payout might be. But hey, listen, I pray and wish the best for Breonna Taylor's family. Shout out to the attorneys that made this happen. I know they worked very hard for this, but in my opinion, it's just uh, way too little and it should have never happened. And we still need to arrest the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor.
let me put it this way to y'all. When you saw the headline or the news come out that they had reached this settlement, were you happy, offended, disappointed? When you saw that news, what emotions came over you at that moment? I was surprised when I seen it. You know, I was not expecting that. I didn't even know that I was being pursued. So it seemed like it was, you know, they did a pretty good job working that behind the scenes. Of course, I'm happy, but I'm not overjoyed, if that makes any sense. You know, I'm just, you know, it's just like, it's like winning a boxing match by a majority uh, decision. It's not a second round knockout. It's not anything spectacular. It's like, oh, okay, we'll take the win. I was shocked because ultimately, like, I think that we all thought that there would be a point where there would be some kind of like wrongful death kind of lawsuit or something like that happening. And this kind of came out of the blue, which means that, yes, all these negotiations were happening and, and yeah, no one was privy to. I think that it's a step in the right direction. It's still not where you want to be, but I think that unfortunately what what needs to happen is like people need to pay, right? And and people need to understand like, all right, black lives do matter, right? Like, and now you're going to have to pay in in this way, right? But yeah, I guess it's hard to say you feel happy about this because the grand context of what actually happened, but I think we're moving in a direction where like, you know, these things are no longer swept under the rug and like these stories are just like, out there for the public to consume and understand like although we would want more where police are saying you know admitting some wrongdoing this is similar to that this feels like that but we still need the other part we still need some arrest and we still need people to you know go to jail for murdering someone to clarify on your point sam from what i read i do believe this was a settlement coming off of a wrongful death lawsuit so they kind of And they might have been working that behind the scenes or like there's just so much other news to kind of dive through that that the fact that this was kind of going out just didn't reach kind of top of the headlines. But yeah, for me, it was kind of the same. Like I was not overjoyed, but I was, you know, I'll come out and say like I was happy to see it. And it's maybe it's not enough, but it's something. And I don't know if we've been so conditioned to see nothing happen that we are complacent with like settling for a settlement that may not be as much as could have been had by that family. But that reminds me that now it's been three months now for George Floyd. I don't think we've heard anything on that side. If you look at it that way, it's like there are so many of these cases and moments and instances and lives that we're still fighting for justice for. So like it kind of, even if it wasn't enough or as much as that family could have received, it's a glimmer of hope to say that like, a slight bit of change might be coming and that this is happening and being recognized at the speed that it happened. The other side of that argument when we come to the George Floyd thing is that those officers were arrested, right? So there will be a criminal trial, right? Because of that, you might wait out the results of a criminal trial and then you get to the actual like civil lawsuit. Over here, it's almost like we know that the officers won't be arrested So let's just settle this and get this out of the public eye. I could be totally wrong and off base by that, but that's certainly what it feels like. Speaking of the journey to justice, man, we're recording this on the day that we got some grave news and the loss of of one of the great ones on the highest of courts in this country. So definitely want to pay our respects and, and give a shout out to the legend RBG. It's a sad day in this country, a sad day for the world um, to lose someone as great as her. Hopefully people do the right thing out there and vote this November and we can appoint someone to that seat who is hopefully equally as strong and progressive as as her. 
I think voting in this upcoming election uh, is pivotal. We have no choice, really. I understand that many Americans are not in love with Joe Biden. You know, he's, he's a centrist. He's got it wrong on many issues, but he's also gotten it right on many other issues too, especially when it comes down to uh, domestic violence and things of that nature. Speaking of which, this is what's at stake. You can, in your honest opinion, believe in, you know, and I'm not trying to demonize anybody who has different political views, but if you believe in your heart of hearts <laughs> that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are the same, fine, you can have that. At least acknowledge that the courts already are hanging the balance, are already tilted grossly to one side. And if you really want a true unchecked presidency with no checks and balances, let Trump get another election under his belt. And you're going to see him rule without any type of impunity. RBG held on. She fought the way she fought. She was getting chemotherapy treatments and going to the gym right after so she could try to equip her body enough to withstand the last few months, hopefully, of this presidency. Unfortunately, she lost her battle. She fought a good fight. In honor of her fight, the least we can do is spend a day. And, you know, for most of us, it probably will only take about an hour to get up and vote. But take yourselves to the polls. Get up and vote. If you got to mail it in, mail it in. Make sure it gets to the ballot box at your local city hall or wherever they're holding it. This is an election. I know it gets said every single election. This is the most consequential election that we've ever had in the generation. Rest in peace, RBG. I know the women of this world are going to miss you and all freedom-loving people are going to miss you as well. Job well done. Good job, warrior. You know, Jeff is always a, a tough act to follow. Absolutely, this is going to be probably the biggest election in the next like 50 years. Like guys, this is going to be something that the last election changed the way we live. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Literally the way you live, the way you interact with people, all those things have changed, right? We have to be smart about our decisions. Definitely, you know, rest in power to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. For those who, you know, we, we haven't actually said her name, so I want to make sure that we say her name. This is going to be huge. And, you know, the fear now is actually that before Trump ends his term, that he would try to get another Supreme Justice in, right? Like, and maybe the window is too short. And obviously, um, he's focused on just his campaign and his reelection. And that's, that's where his energy is. But would we be shocked? Certainly wouldn't, right? So this is major and, and we have to be to stand, guys. Let's go out there and vote. And for places that are allowed to vote by mail, then vote by mail. Some states are allowing early voting. Well, leave your house now and go vote, right? Like Jeff said, it might take an hour, right? So go ahead and do that. And shout out to like the NBA who decided to make all their arenas poll, uh, voting stations. So Listen, there, there's somewhere that's relatively close to you where you can go out and vote. So please go ahead and do that. In addition to exercising your right to vote for those of able body and mind and that have the free time, also encourage everyone, if you can, to, you know, donate your time and become a poll worker, man. As, as these two guys have already kind of said, I'll just echo how important this election is. 
we don't need any issues where people going up and showing up for polls and then can't get their vote counted because the line is too long or because the machines are defaulting or because they're being turned away. So if you are of able body and mind, highly, highly recommend you guys go out there and, and do what you can to volunteer. There's great organizations out there like Power of the Polls that are making it easy to kind of make sure you have the information that's needed to sign up in your local area. So and this wasn't a sponsored read or anything like that. So recommend you guys going out and doing that. But um, we'll be here every week to fight the power with you guys. And hopefully by the time we get to November, man, we'll have some good news because God, it's been a long year. But uh, as always, thank you guys for riding with us to this episode. We'll be back next Monday as we are every week. In the meantime, in between time, man, hit us up on social media at FRFR, the podcast. Let us know what y'all think about the episode. Let us know what you want to hear. I see people kind of in our DMs on Instagram every now and again trying to send over topics, man. So y'all send us something good, man. We might actually dive into it on an episode. So keep the comments coming. Keep the feedback coming. Until then, peace.